Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of July 29th. This summer is just winding on. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas. Joined again by Josh Blank, research director at said Texas Politics Project. You keeping coolish, Josh? Trying my best. It's very hot out there, not to talk about the weather. Um, but you can't really help it at this point. It's just It's July in Austin, man. Right. So, you know, the thing is, it's not almost over. It's great. Only yeah. only two to three more months of this. Um Okay, we want to talk about a few things today besides the weather. Um Topic one is something I suspect many of you have not seen much about if you're in the course, but is really uh, uh, getting people to prick up their ears and turn on their, you know, check into all their gossip channels in Austin this week. And that is uh, something that happened with Speaker of the House Dennis Bonin. Um, Some of you remember Dennis Bonin is in his first term, just finished his first term as Speaker of the House. He's from Angleton, longtime veteran of the Texas House of Representatives, uh, elected Speaker in, you know, what was a fairly shrewd political move and maneuver uh, back in the fall of 2018, had a fairly successful 2019 session. Um, elected very much on a platform of serving all the members of the House and bringing some sense of normalcy back to the internal operations of the House and to the party. And then some of that took a little bit of a hit last week. So last Thursday, it was reported uh, in the Tribune after a release by one of the principals in this meeting, that that Speaker Bonin had had a meeting in his office with the director of one of what we would call a dissident conservative interest group that has been very active in promoting the most conservative candidates, for the most part, in the Republican Party in the state. And in Republican primaries. And particularly have, have been active in... in Supporting conservative Republicans against conser- against sometimes incumbents, but certainly other candidates that they think are not conservative enough, but are still Republicans in the primary elections. And in this meeting, which was reported initially by Michael, the, the director of that organization, a guy named Michael Quinn Sullivan, uh, who said that he'd been invited to this meeting and that during this meeting, uh, the speaker offered them a deal in which if they would stand down in challenging Republican incumbents writ large, but limit their challenges to only 10 members, which allegedly the speaker uh, gave, well, gave to them through the uh, head of the House Republican caucus, that then they would allow them to have 
access to press credentials in the House of Representatives. And this gets into the weeds, and we don't go too far into it. But basically, Empower Texans claims to be a journalistic organization that is separate from a connected interest group that in, that takes place and that conducts all these efforts in, in campaigns. They've had a court challenge to not, you know, because they were prohibited from getting court credentials and they were getting press credentials. And the reason they were prohibited from getting press credentials was basically because they were seen as a hostile force yeah. to the establishment forces in the House. So, well, and they're clearly engaged in electioneering attacks. Exactly. I mean, they're not, I mean, regardless of which, you know, part of the coalition they belong to, they're very they are, actively involved. They're an active interest group. And, and, and their argument is, well, we have two separate organizations. It's legally not the same, et cetera. And this is our First Amendment riot, and you're curtailing this. They've actually not been overly successful with that in the courts. They've been so pretty far. much unsuccessful so um, far. But, but this is what was on the table. Now, you know, this becomes a political problem for the speaker, and it's really the first big political problem the speaker's had, right? Right. I think I think that's right. I mean, one of the things that, you know, you were mentioning here is the fact that, you know, Bonin would say is, you know, a creature of the House. He was elected at a very young age. He served for a very long time in the House. And part of, you know, the the argument, you know, for his election was the fact that he was there, as you said, to serve the body, and he really would, you know, stand up for the body, you know, especially when attacked by outside forces, whether that be the Senate on the one hand, but also groups like Michael Quinn Sullivan's and Power Texans on the other. And so the notion that he had had a, a closed door meeting with the head of the group that he has been, you know, at odds with, and also to work out a deal in which, you know, they would train their fire on a select list of incumbent Republicans was, you know, pretty scandalous. And I mean, further context for this is at the end of the session, Bonin made clear to all of the incumbent House members, Democrats and Republicans, that if they campaigned in uh, in the elections of other incumbents, so whether that's a Democrat supporting a Democratic challenger to a Republican incumbent or a Republican incumbent uh, supporting a Republican challenger to a Democrat incumbent, they would be punished. So the idea that the speaker had then gone behind members' backs to enlist a third party to actually do this attacking was, you know, I mean, it's fodder for, it's certainly, look, it's hot and awesome, but this is fun, right? A nice little fun summer surprise if you're interested in politics. Right. It was fodder for a lot of, of chatter and excitement around people who follow these things and saying, you know, how true is this? Is this right? Is this really what happened? Right. And so, and so we should mention that Michael Quinn Sullivan's group published the, a long piece by Michael Quinn Sullivan Claiming that this had happened, that this meeting had happened, and, and the, the you know the post was a very kind of blow by blow. Mm -hmm. You know, I walked in, and this is who was there, and we talked about this for a while, and then this came up, and then the speaker left the room, and the list was given, you know, was named to me, uh, and he named all the names on the list, right. and and you know, uh, we were talking about this before. It's a list that, by and large, can be made to make sense. If you're looking at the story, there were people on that list who had been, also been candidates for speaker and not really gone along with Bonin right away. People that have been, you know, seen as either contenders or, or to some degree, you know, not not as down with the Bonin speakership as everyone else seemed to be, for the most part. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, looking at that list to try to figure out the plausibility of this account, you can look at that list and think, you know, both that is a plausible list if, if this is true, that this is what happened and that this, you know, and the speaker conveyed through an right. intermediary that this was the list of people. At the same time, you could look at that list and say, well, you know, 
and this is sort of the question because we haven't even gotten to the competing narrative here, which is to say, you know, just to be clear, it's a murder mystery here. I mean, Bonin has categorically denied this right. version yeah, let, of let's, events. Let's lay that out. Let's there. lay so, that out first. So the yeah. way that this, you know, that this plays out over the weekend is. Uh, the speaker sends a letter to Michael Quinn Sullivan that reads in a lot of way, almost like a letter that you'd send to. Well, didn't he send it to a little bit? I thought he sent it to the house to a little. Well, that, I think that came later, but he wrote Michael Quinn Sullivan back and said, you know, enjoyed visiting with you and, you know, thank you for your service to conservative causes to paraphrase. But I want to correct your impression that I asked you to intervene in any way in any House races against any candidates, including especially Republicans. And so implicitly contest the account of the meeting, right. but confirms that the meeting did, did take place right. and that this was a meeting that seems to be and, and also points the, the and points Quinn Sullivan to the proper procedure for credentials says that I don't have any, the speaker's office doesn't have anything to do with this. There are two other bodies, you know, elements, you know, entities you need to talk to, you know, so I wouldn't be talking to you about that and you should talk to them. One of which you're currently suing. Right. And so, (laughs) you know, so he basically confirms the fact that there was a meeting, Mm -hmm. which is, which is eyebrow raising in and of itself for the reasons you're talked about, which is Michael Quinsolum is often seen as a, hostile outside force by many members, um, but denies the account. Um, you know, the, Michael Quinn Sullivan is sticking with his story. And there are a lot of people now, some of the people, at least one of the people on that list, you know, wants more information about this. The speaker later wrote the members of the House also denying it. So, so the speaker is saying that the meeting is confirmed that the meeting happened, but is contesting Michael Quinn Sullivan's account of the meeting. So, you know, before we get too too much further in the weeds, so what do we what do you want to take out of this implica- as implications in terms of, you know, the political system writ more large in Texas? First, and because you know, we'll, we talk a lot in the class about how the House operates and the nature of the speakership. This is the first big challenge for a speaker who just finished his first term with largely positive reviews. Notably, some of the people that were not giving him largely positive reviews were the outside, more far-right conservative groups like or even especially Empower Texans. So in terms of the position of the speaker, you know, up to this point, Bonin had looked very secure. All of a sudden, he's got this is kind of the first big problem to solve. Second, and kind of along these lines, it, it underlines the degree to which the speaker is elected by the body to represent them. He is not elected sp- statewide, his position in the House is driven by his election in a district, in this case, as we've said, uh, the Angleton area for Dennis Bonin, but he becomes Speaker by being elected by the 149 other members of the House of Representatives. Um, And at this moment, you know, as, as you were saying, a big part of his argument was, I'm here to represent the body, which is what they say right. when they're trying to be All of chummy you. and insider yeah. Um and and right now there are some that are not feeling represented and it undermine and it undermines his trustworthiness to have spoken loudly and often about not challenging it about not supporting challenges to incumbents as you as you were saying but then being accused of trying to get someone else to do it on the down low and via somebody that is widely disliked in the body 
Right. I mean, you know, people have worked with Michael Quinn Sullivan and Empowered Texans. And they'll continue they to. Are, they have allies. There are some people that are allies, but it's been, frankly, a shrinking group of allies, and they are seen as people that, that participate in Democratic primaries. Republican primaries. In, yeah, I'm sorry, in Republican primaries. Um, and then, you know, I think I think at the, at the kind of highest level, it really underlines how political parties in the American system, including at the state level, are always coalitions of interests, of ideological commitments and priorities, and even, as we're seeing in this case, at this level, within the chambers, personal factions. I mean, if you were to take, you know, all 10 of those guys and Bonin and really the people in the Republican coalition with just a few outliers, there's not a lot of difference between what they're after by and large. They have different priorities, you know, yeah. but they have different priorities and they line up differently in terms of personal factions and cliques, you know, yeah, and, a- and, you know, that it was, is a big factor, I think, in looking and parsing that list of 10 people that helps you make sense or not make sense of it. So, you know, many of those targeted were either competitors for the speaker's seat or not enthusiastic supporters, um, with a dollop of the left-right piece of that. Yeah. I mean, two things I'll add to that. I mean, I think in the way that you're saying, I mean, another piece to this is that, you know, you're right. I mean, I don't think that many of the, the 10 Republicans that were named there or the speaker, or even if you were to then pick out some random set of other Republicans in the House are going to look that different. And you highlight some of the reasons that they're they're the same. And I mean, I think one of the major differences often comes down to not necessarily their policy preferences, but their calculations about the feasibility right. of enacting that policy and the likely, you know, reaction once policy is enacted. And this comes down to some of the more, and this is really, I think, where you get to the, sort of some of the issue in the Republican coalition between sort of far-right groups and farther-right members or members to the further to the right of the ideological spectrum versus more center-right or establishment Republicans or, or what you might call them is this notion of, you know, like, for example, what would happen if we outlawed abortion entirely in the state? I mean, it might be a goal overall for the group as a whole, but how you do it... And the, and the consequences are where you start to get to see a lot of, a lot of differences right. there. And the other thing, you know, I think that's sort of important, as you mentioned, the sort of the coalitional politics here. You know, it, right now, I mean, one of the sort of, I think, the parlor game question is, you know, okay, so whose account do we believe or is it somewhere in the middle? And again, Bonin's account is that this basically didn't happen as, he can, as Michael Quinn Sullivan conveyed it. And obviously, I wouldn't say we should target these people. That doesn't make sense. But they're, they're you know... There are some ways about which that account has been released that makes people a little bit suspicious, in particular the fact that, you know, Chairman Burroughs, who is the other, uh, right. you know, Republican member at the meeting, basically has not made any comment about what happens. Uh, and to some degree, at Bonin's request request, you know, per through bond, that's what he said. And that sort of seems odd. I think for a lot of Republicans who would say, well, wait, why can't the other person at the meeting, like, confirm or verify one account or the other? That creates a problem. And the problem just becomes, you know, at this point, it gets to the coalitional politics. And we were talking about this this morning before here, you know, what makes coalitions work is often, you know, temporary, transactional, and can change depending on the nature of a changing situation. Right. The reality is, is that whether this is true or not, for members who maybe aren't as supportive of Bonin but decided that they should get on board at the outset, for members who are outright not supportive of his uh, of his speakership, now you've got some ammunition. Right. You have some, and, something to question. And, and there is a yeah, and, and you know, I, I probably overdid it a little bit in saying that they're not that far apart, but there are you know there are differences, and in, in the I guess the the question the 
the sense of this is that the question becomes priorities. If you think about mm-hmm. yeah. looking at the last session as we've talked about this, what's really become kind of the distinguishing point between the far right and the center right kind of governing coalition in the Republican Party in Texas, of which and Bonin is now part of that governing coalition, mm-hmm. is less, you know, what do we all think about all these issues is what issues should we emphasize? Right. And this is right. And you we, mentioned abortion and that's what made yeah. me think of that. So the far right has been, for the most part, wanting to emphasize more social issues to some degree and on some of the uh, and on some of the issues that then the other people, the other faction wants to emphasize like taxes, they have somewhat more extreme positions, though not fundamentally yeah. different. And so there is this tension between those two factions. Yeah. And this is not like a little issue. If, as you guys have all learned, you know, in a 140 day legislative session that takes place every two years, there's only so much room and so much time to address issues. And even an issue that, you know, maybe is not a huge policy debate, but could create a lot of friction in the body because of its ideological components can actually derail, you know, a significant number of days of the legislative session, of which there are only so many. And that's why this agenda control thing actually becomes so important. It's not like the U.S. Congress, which is meeting more or less perpetually besides their recesses or in other states where the legislature is basically, again, more or less meeting, you know, at least every year, if not, you know, really almost continuously in Texas because of this limited amount of time, only so much can get addressed in each legislative session. So this agenda control issue among the majority party becomes, you know, I mean, it's extremely important if you're looking to achieve certain goals. And, and, and can, as we're seeing now, can become a, a source of division. Right. right? And, and, and factions sort of distinguishing themselves. Okay. So moving on, just what, very briefly, we want to touch, speaking of coalitional politics, the two Texans in the Democratic presidential nomination contest, Julian Castro and Beto O'Rourke. Uh, we'll have to perform well in the Democratic debates that are being held this week in Detroit. Um, probably by the time you hear this, the debates will hap- have happened, so we're not going to belabor this too much. But the debates also underline how the nature of the two catch-all political parties in the U.S. shape politics. And some of the same dynamics actually are at work in the in the contest for the Democratic presidential nomination. You know, there is some left-right spread here in terms of from center-left in the Democratic Party to the further left, but even how you look at that and how you define yourself is in some ways shaped by what issue you're pushing to the to the front of the agenda in this race. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if you've been following any of the coverage leading up to these debates, or, or even, you know, even if you just follow some of the coverage af- after, this, be- this sort of coalitional who fits where people talk about lanes a lot right right? i mean this is the way that at the very least the political press chooses to understand it but it's not clear that the candidates aren't looking at it this way too i mean in the first night debate uh i mean one of the questions i mean one of the big questions was you know so okay elizabeth warren and bernie sanders are going to be on the same stage they've both they've basically been in that second and third place position in most national polling and the idea is they're two more they're two candidates who represent the progressive wing of the party right. more so than yeah the left end more so than let's say the left of center end which joe biden is representing uh and looking to capitalize occupy, and yeah. occupy right and so the idea is that people watching the debate tonight have sort of asked you know are these two candidates going to go after each other a little bit to try to you know separate themselves make one look better than the other and this sort of again speaks to coalition at this point in the process with 20 candidates you know it's not necessarily the case that every candidate is trying to sweep up all of the voters yet right. to some degree they're trying to appeal to slices of the electorate 
and that's conditioned by the electoral map. It's the fact that you right. know it's going to be Iowa and then New Hampshire and then South Carolina. So it's the sequencing of those races, plus the nature and the composition of the Democratic primary elector. It means that you know it's not necessarily the case that Beto O'Rourke is looking to get all the Democratic voters right now. He's looking to get a foothold in with some subset and of them. And expand out if he can just get some leverage. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll say, I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, it's widely sort of assumed that Beto O'Rourke has to have a really good debate performance. It's true for both Castro and O'Rourke. It's true for a lot of candidates. I mean, one of the things that's going to change between this debate going to the next one is so far to get into the de- Democratic debates, you've had to either be polling above a certain threshold or have enough donors spread across a certain number of states. When we move to the next debate, you're actually going to be able to do both of those things right. to, to qualify. And right now, I think only seven of the 20 candidates debating tonight would qualify for the next debate. And that's why everybody's, that's why if you're reading something, it feels a little bit breathless. I mean, to some degree, I feel like it's a little ridiculous. I mean, it's a debate going on at the beginning of, you know, August or, you know, or, or I'm sorry, late, late July. How serious can this be? But the reality is, is, you know, for some of these candidates, like this is going to be their last best chance to have a big right. moment before they're going to get winnowed out of the next uh, prime, basically the next primary debate, uh, which is going to take place in August, actually, uh, in Texas. In Houston. And so it'll be interesting to watch, you know, like how they approach. I mean, there are different ways you can try to stand out. One is by, you know, trying to appeal to the people in your, you know, lane or, you know, that corresponds to the messaging or the brand, you know, so for Beta or work, it would be, you know, we need a new, you know, a new brand of a new kind of politics that transcends all the nastiness and ugliness. Right. And, you know, I mean, in a primary, it's kind of tough because he still wants to has to be partisan and appeal to partisans, but he's trying to appeal to the new, you know, kind of breath of fresh air. I think Castro, and one could disagree about this, has been angling somewhat more from the left, but also trying to occupy the field on the immigration issue, which also helps underline, you know, his presence or his origins in Texas and and his ethnicity. Right. Yeah. I mean, Castro definitely feels like I mean, part of this is this is the problem with this whole with lane this whole... dynamic. Because I mean, if I really start thinking like, well, where does Castro fit in this in this, you know, in this constant, in this construction right. of the of the case, and it's sort of like like an aggressive highway driver, you can change lanes. Yeah, multiple times, but I mean, in this case, I mean, it's a little too simple. I mean, I think you're right. I would say, you know, Castro's probably, you know, somewhere between, let's say, you know, the moderate Democrat, you know, center left Democratic candidates, and the more progressive, more left leaning mm-hmm. candidates. Yeah, I think that's right. On on most of the policy issues, I think he's kind of setting himself as, you know, he's had experiences. A mayor, and also he's worked in he's worked at, at you know right. the housing and urban development. Pragmatic progressive, pragmatic progressive. But then I think, but then you're right. Then they when could you use th- that if they want, they could. And then, but then you hit the immigration issue, and he's using his own personal history, you know, his own demographics, and he's pushing probably further to the left on that issue, which then speaks to like, so is he a, a really progressive candidate? Is he moderate? Is he somewhere in the Well, that's where you get the limitations of these kinds of definitions. Right. I mean... Well, they, yeah, I mean, they and they can, in a primary, they come and go because the candidates are doing trial and error. I mean, they're trying, you know, they're trying out lines and they try to define themselves a certain way. And if it doesn't work, you know, they'll adjust as much as they can. And especially right now, I think, you know, you, you're going to see that. You know, so I just want to, we didn't talk about this before, but I just want to jump one point on something I've been thinking about, which is you may hear a lot of talk about, you know, how, oh, you know, long drawn out primaries with a lot of candidates, they hurt the eventual nominee. And, you know, in some cases that's true. In some cases it's not. I think here in the Democratic primary, you're seeing, you know, potentially how, I'm not sure that's true. I mean, if anybody besides 
Joe Biden, who came in as a frontrunner, or Bernie Sanders, who also came in with a wellspring of support, ends up winning the nomination, it's going to likely be because this process has forced them to refine and improve their message and improve their connection with Democratic voters in a way that they're going to be seen as they're going to require doing better and growing their support. And I don't think that hurts any of these candidates in the long right. run. It probably makes them better candidates, ultimately. Yeah. So anyway, just just an aside, a little pet, another pet peeve there. Topic three. <laughs> Although at some point you got to you got to thin it out a little. Oh yeah, well, yeah. Ho- well hopefully by the next one. I yeah. Mean, well, I, I think almost certainly. And I, I just think on the one more. You know, I think one thing is interesting. It's going to be interesting to watch, and this could be proven wrong by the time yeah. people hear this. But um, I'm wrong all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what the unintended consequences of a higher level of desperation on the unknown candidates is, you know, and this is where I feel like an old guy. I mean, I, you know, without going, Hey, back in 1984, although that's what I'm thinking, you know, sometimes the melee of people trying to make their case inadvertently helps another candidate on the stage. And that's one of the things I'm really kind of watching. You know, one, I agree with you. I thought that there would be a lot more of that in the last debate and there wasn't not enough desperation, not enough desperation yet, but I think that is something that really benefited Kamala Harris in the last debate, right? right. I mean, to some degree, just just her being able to say, hey, guys, stop it. You right. look ridiculous makes her look like the adult in the room. And she definitely benefited right. from that. And, and I think what also, you know, what can also happen even without the direct intervention of a candidate. And, and I think it's very, I, I just feel like it's likely to happen in this field is that Somebody that nobody knows stands up and says, hey, we really need a fresh voice, and I'm that voice. And they're persuasive. But then somebody goes, yeah, you're, you know, you're right, whoever you are. Yeah. And Kamala Harris or yeah. somebody in the medium tier that's come up benefits from that. Yeah. Um, they go, yeah, it's a good argument. Yeah. But sorry. Sorry yeah. about you. Sorry, I don't know who you are. Per se. <laughs> um Okay, uh, you know, topic three that we were just going to flag because it's just so, you know, there, but we don't have much time, is race in the headlines again as a, re- as a result of yet more t- signaling via Twitter from the president. Um, we can't cover this all, but it, it's out there. Over the weekend, Donald Trump attacked Maryland Congressman Elijah Cummings, uh, referring to his district in terms, you know, as uh, infested by rodents and crime and but in a way that couldn't help but uh, come across as racial signaling, particularly in the way that in the language that he used and in context of things that the president has tweeted before and been arguing for years during his career. It, it, it further inflamed the conversation about the president's willingness to use racially loaded or you know, racist language um, in his tweets and in his comments as a way of trying to appeal to some faction of the base. We were talking before this about, you know, the degree to which this was strategy and the degree to it was just the president being the president and having this ingrained, ingrained way of communicating. You know, I was thinking after we were about this, after we had the conversation about this briefly before the podcast, you know, I mean, I, I think... With the president, they merge in a way that, yeah. you know, his this is his instinctive strategy when these things float in front of his radar. And he doesn't ask anybody about it, and he does it. It's comfortable to him, and he thinks it's effective. Yeah, I mean, if the impulse, uh, you know, generates the type of feedback that the president likes, 
let's just put it that way, yeah. then it becomes a strategy. Those neural pathways have got a lot of reinforcement yeah. over the course of his 70 plus years on the planet. And so, I mean, so that's the thing. I mean, there's this whole impulse strategy, you know, but obviously, I mean, I would say this, look, it's kind of irrelevant. It may have been an impulse when it started, but, you know, it would have been very easy for the president to pick another divisive topic or to, you know, do something else because he does it all the time and change the news cycle and change the discussion to whatever, you know, the next thing that he's focused on is. Yeah. But I think the fact is he chose not to do that. Yeah. I mean, you know, just, I mean, to, just to make that explicit, I mean, I think if you're I mean, much of the sort of unattributed reporting has been, well, this makes his staff really tense. They wish he wouldn't do it. They think it's a bad strategy. And this was really I mean. In terms of you saying, well, there was a million things you could have done if you wanted to be, you know, divisive and appeal to his base. And he chose the thing that seemed, you know, as inflammatory as he could get at this point. And if you go back to something we talked about either last week or the week before in the podcast, I mean, this follows on the president making the comments about the four members of Congress mm -hmm. that they should go back to their where they came from while they're. From America. Three of the four from America, all four American citizens, all four have been elected to Congress, all are duly, a member, or duly elected members of Congress. All four of them are non-white. And and, but all four of them are non-white. But it left this, like, it's almost like it left this little space for, and you were, you were articulating this earlier yeah. today, you know, for people to say, well, you know, America, love it or leave it, you know, whether they're from here or not from here, I don't think it's because they're people of color. I think it's because they're not from here. And I think that's, you know, I can, if you're, if you're already holding some of those attitudes, you're able to resist it being called racist. Well, then he went and then attacked an African-American member of Congress. Long, long serving, African long, long serving African-American member of Congress and criticized, you know, the, the district and the, and the city that he represents, right. Baltimore. And so it's almost as if he closed any space for doubt. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, and you know, not, you know, I mean, I don't want to say not that the facts matter, <laughs> but just to throw this out there, I mean, so this is not the first time that I think he's attacked no, he said the Elijah same thing. Cummings District specifically, right. who's the right. member. And, and he did the same thing with John Lewis. Right, with John Lewis. Another long-term African. You know, you know, Elijah Cummings is probably like the second most distinguished African-American member of Congress behind John Lewis. Yeah, he was but a civil rights pioneer. And just to be fair for just a moment, I mean, he's attacking him because Elijah Cummings chairs an, a couple of committees that are undergoing investigation, the various investigations into the president. And so that is, I mean, if you want to say, what is the impetus for attacking this member in particular, other than race, that is the reason. But... In doing so, he described the district basically as, as a hellhole where no one would want to live. Well, look, it's a majority African-American district. It actually has higher rates of college completion than the country as a whole. It actually has a pretty high average income relative. Yeah, now, a, doesn't mean, I, think, doesn't, I think I heard, you know, the, they've been saying that it's like the second highest African-American median income in, in the country. Of all congressional yeah. districts. It doesn't yeah. mean that it doesn't have crime and issues. Right. But, you know, you can see how. You know, someone might say, boy, the way he's the language he's using, I mean, uh, you know, to describe this district, the fact that he's choosing to attack him on the heels of attacking, uh, you know, again, four minority representatives of Congress and telling him to go back to their own country. You could see how people might read that as racist. Right. And that, you know, and again, and I wasn't saying that he could have chosen any other thing. I mean, I mean I'm just saying it didn't it wasn't even necessarily the case that he could have chosen something else divisive to talk about. But the president is very good at changing the media narrative if he wants to. He is very much capable of going out yeah. and with a tweet, 
with an executive order, with some kind of, you know, new rulemaking decision, you know, changing the news cycle from focusing on whether or not his rhetoric is racist to something else that he's doing. And it seemed like he chose to stick on this path. Yeah. And I mean, I also should add, he also, uh, you know, basically got into a spat with Reverend Al Sharpton, also black from New York. You know, again, over the same issue. It went on and on. But anyway. You know, and I think two things are not coincidental in terms of this. What is he going to choose to talk about? You know, even though it wasn't very successful, Robert Mueller testified before Congress and that was the media spectacle. Now, that broke his way in terms of the coverage and it's a whole other topic. But Mm -hmm. um, and there was more. I mean, you know, and Elijah Cummings was following up on some of that when the oversight committee, that's not. That's not what the impetus of this was, or at least the the hook that Trump used. The hook that Trump used was uh, Elijah Cummings grilling, you know, a, a Trump administration official on policy at the border, mm-hmm. which then he then tried to turn on in, in this way, in the way that you're saying. So, and I think, you know, just to close this out and, you know, try desperately to have one theme here, although it's it's not bad. No, it's, no this is actually, this is this maybe is actually pretty good. Yeah, better than most in this. Um you know, the background of this is the coalitional politics in, in the Democratic and the Republican Party among racial lines in terms of support and opposition to, to Donald Trump. So if you just look at Texas numbers, um, you know, Trump's job approval overall in our last poll was 52-44, 52 approved, 44 disapproved, higher than his national numbers, which I would expect in Texas, Republican state. Um, these are registered voters. But, you know, uh, his job approval among Anglo's whites in Texas, 61 positive, 35 negative. Among African-Americans, 27 positive, 66 negative. With 66 or with 60 percent of that disapproving strongly. Right. So there is a strong racial component. I mean, the, the you know, there are there are strong there are there are stark differences in the racial perceptions of Donald Trump. And these are not going to go away, would be my guess. And the point here is the president seems to not want them to go away based on his actions. And I think whatever ambiguities one wants to sort out about what the right label is or whether this is, you know, strategy or impulse, whatever, the president is comfortable with these numbers. Yep. So with that, we'll call it a wrap and we'll see you next week. Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project and Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services at the University of Texas at Austin.